Part three of George Friedrich Handel by Herbert F. Pieser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Yet there were breakers ahead. Whether or not he could discern them from afar, it is probably unlikely that the prospect of conflict would have troubled overmuch a nature as powerful and combative as Handel's. Indeed, difficulties were what this prodigious vitality and ever-renewing creative inspiration best throve upon. As so often happens in lands where opera is fundamentally an exotic, people again wanted opera. It was a logical time to end the canon's interlude. The psychology of the moment, to which Handel was sensitive, came just when company promoting took on almost the aspect of a hobby. There was money aplenty, and the South Sea bubble, which was indeed swelling, had not yet burst. So Lord Burlington and other peers raised capital for a new season of Italian opera, appointed Handel director-in-chief, made the ugly but efficient Heidegger stage-manager, rounded up librettists, and sent Handel to the continent to engage singers for what was to be known as the Royal Academy of Music, an English duplication of the official name of the Paris Opera and the weekly journal soon announced that Mr. Handel, a famous master of music, is gone beyond the sea by order of his majesty to collect a company of the choicest singers for the opera in the haymarket. Mr. Handel visited Hanover, Dusseldorf, Dresden, and Halle, where he went to his birthplace, Amschlam, saw his old mother, who was going blind, and her aging spinster sister and at this point occurred one of the most poignant incidents of musical history, that meeting of Handel and Bach, thwarted by an inscrutable destiny. Bach learned that his contemporary was in Halle, went there on foot from Kürten to seek him out, and missed him by a day. Even Bach's subsequent dispatch of his son, Wilhelm Friedemann, to invite Handel to visit him misfired, and the two were destined forever to remain personal strangers. Handel secured some extraordinary singers in Dresden, where the Italian opera was blooming. In addition to Boschi, the bass, who had sung in Rinaldo, he bagged the great Signora Durastanti and the castrato Cinecino, who until the subsequent coming of the mighty Farinelli was perhaps the artificial soprano whom London most worshipped at a time when castrati were completely the rage. Senesino played incredible havoc with the hearts of deluded women. Handel, in addition to the countless duties of a music director, had also operas to compose, and in due season he was somehow turning out three a year. Nicola Francesco Heim supplied him with a libretto adopted from Tacitus, Radamisto, and this work, produced on April 27, 1720, was a triumph such as even Handel had never experienced. It ran till the season ended, late in June. Crowds flocked to Radamisto like a modern mob to a notorious prize-fight. Newman Flower The first season of the Royal Academy finished in a flourish, aided by the circumstance that the metropolis was in the throes of an orgy of financial speculation. We can read of incredible schemes and bubbles with the help of which money was to be lured from private pocket-books. 
Newman Flower tells us of one for trading in hair, another for the universal supply of funerals in Great Britain, one for a wheel of perpetual motion, one for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. Still another project contemplated breeding silkworms in Chelsea Park. By the time things were ready for the opening of the Academy's second season, Lord Burlington imported from Rome the composer Giovanni Battista Bononcini, possibly not dreaming that he was introducing a dangerous rival to Handel. In his little way, Bononcini had talent and charm, as well as a conceit out of all proportion to his pleasant gifts. An opera of his was produced at the Academy with Senesino in the cast, and enjoyed a good run, while a composite work called Musio Scivola, with one act by Handel, another by Bononcini, and a third by a mediocrity, Filippo Mattei, followed. The results of the increasingly complicated situation were to precipitate a contest that split London's high society into factions. The cynical John Byram compressed it into an epigram, part of which has entered the English language. Some say, compared to Bononcini, that Meinherr handles but a ninny. Others aver that he to handle is scarcely fit to hold a candle. Strange all this difference should be, twixt Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Be all of which as it may, Handel presently had the mortification of seeing his new Floridante fail, while Bononcini's pretty Griselda packed the theatre like nothing since Radamisto. But Handel resembled the mythical Antaeus, who, whenever he fell, renewed his own powers by contact with Mother Earth. Before long he was turning out masterpieces in bewildering continuity. In 1723 he composed the superb Otone, in 1724 Tamerlano, and Giulio Cesar, and the following season the sumptuous Rodolinda, in 1726 Scipione and Alessandro, in 1727 Admetto and Riccardo I, in 1728 Siroe and Ptolemeo. This period, incidentally, brings us to those excesses of singer-worship and rivalry which stirred the public to white heat and turned the opera-house into something between a wild prize-fight and a three-ring circus. Then, in 1722-23, the species prima donna suddenly invaded the scene, in the person of Francesca Cusone, who was squat and ungainly, but had an astounding voice and an art of song that made high society overlook her bad temper and her worse style in dress. Handel had occasion to experience her tantrums at the rehearsal of a tone, when she refused to sing an aria as the composer wanted it whereupon he had recourse to real taming of the shrew tactics, seizing her bodily and threatening to throw her out of the window, at the same time shouting to her in French, Oh, madame, I know full well that you are a real she-devil, but I intend to teach you that I am Beelzebub, the chief of devils. Whereupon the humbled Guzzoni sang her falsa imaginina, exactly as Handel wanted. Possibly the incident did not end Handel's difficulties with her, but in her relations with him she became more tractable, and if she could not subdue the insensitive master, she did subdue her audiences. 
Damn, she has a nest of nightingales in her belly, yelled one of the gallery gods on a certain occasion, and the plebeian indelicacy seems to have won the approval of the boxes. Soon Anastasia Robinson, revolted by the turmoil over Cusoni, retired from stage life and married the Earl of Peterborough. Cusoni, however, was only one obstacle of her kind. Soon afterwards the management, on the lookout for another sensation, secured the soprano's most hated continental rival, Faustina Bordoni, who was to become the wife of the composer Haas. Handel brought the pair on the stage together in his opera Alessandro. Lady Pembroke was protectress of Cusoni, Lady Burlington of Faustina. Finally, in May 1727, things culminated when the two jealous creatures came to blows during a performance of Bononcini's Astanix, tore each other's hair, and pummeled one another in full view of the spectators, who took sides and shrieked with delight as the coiffures of the combatants were ruined and faces scratched. The fighting cats, as the pair were called, later were made the subject of Colley Sibber's farce the rival queens. In time, Cusoni, despite her lack of taste in dressing, was to set fashions, and a brown and silver attire in which she appeared in Rodolinda so captivated the ladies that with modish variations it was to be the rage for years. The various castrati, notably the great Senesino, were in many ways as capricious and difficult to manage as the prima donnas. Senesino, having irritated the Earl of Peterborough by reason of some reflection on Anastasia Robinson, was flogged by her husband. The scandal enchanted the drawing-rooms, and society was even more delighted when the singer, appearing in Giulio Cesar, was frightened out of his wits and burst into tears because a piece of scenery fell at his feet at the very moment when, as Julius Caesar, he had to sing words to the effect that Caesar knows no fear. In time came the greatest castrato of them all, the incredible Farinelli, who earned so much in London that when he retired to Italy he built himself a palace there which he sarcastically named English Folly. People used to shout at the opera that there was only one god and one Farinelli and describing a London birthday party where this divinity was among the guests, the Duchess of Portland wrote, There were about forty gentlemen that had an entertainment, and Farinelli wore a magnificent suit of clothes, and charmed the company with his voice, as Orpheus did, and so kept them from drinking. On the other hand, when this god was once so imprudent as to walk uninvited into a party at the Duke of Modena's in St. James's Street, the infuriated host showed him the door with the words, Get out, fellow! None but gentlemen come here. All these scandals, spectacular squabbles, and silly exhibitions did not, in the long run, enhance the credit of the Academy. Handel, who had been naturalized on February 13, 1726, and at the same time been appointed composer to the court and to the chapel royal, was, together with the rest of London, shocked in the early summer of 1727 to learn of the death of George I on a trip to Germany. 
On October 11 of the same year George II was crowned, and though less favorably disposed to the composer than his father, continued the pensions Handel held from the late sovereign and from Queen Anne, and contributed to them another large sum for music lessons to the young princesses. Handel, for his part, wrote for the new king four coronation anthems, which added to his glory. The Academy, after losing an appalling amount of money, presently received its death blow, the production at the theatre in Lincoln's Inn Fields of The Beggar's Opera, by the clever satirist John Gay, with music compiled by Dr. Pepusch, Handel's predecessor in the employ of the Duke of Chandos. This ballad opera that made Gay rich and rich the manager Gay, which still leads a lusty existence, and has been at various times a landmark in English and American theatrical history, proved an earthy and bawdy entertainment against the barbed shafts of whose ridicule the artifices of Italian opera could not prevail for long. Yet Handel remained incorrigible. Once again he entered into partnership with Heidegger, planned another opera season, secured Senesino again, and went abroad to engage other singers. On that occasion he travelled again to Italy, went to Hamburg, and made a last visit to his aged mother in Halle. She was now paralyzed, and shortly afterwards she died. The new London opera season got off to a bad start, one failure succeeding another. Politics aggravated the situation, the more so as George II and the Prince of Wales were at odds, and the supporters of the latter determined to set up a rival opera company to ruin Handel. But the story of Handel's pertinacious efforts to float new operatic enterprises for almost another ten years is too long, involved, and too honeycombed with intrigue, contending influences and low tactics of one sort or another to be examined here. The composer's Hanoverian origin stirred many parties against him. Moreover, he was a self-willed, imperious person, who, like Richard Wagner, more than a century later, had the gift of stimulating antagonism. He was, wrote W. McNaught, a pervading presence, a busybody forever intruding upon public affairs. He had taken to ordering the amusements of the town in his own interests, and he belonged to the wrong party. One almost fancies oneself confronted with a chapter from the life of the creator of De Meistersinger. Yet what a treasury of glorious music Handel was pouring out with incalculable lavishness during these agitated years. Let us mention in passing a few of the new operas as they came and went. Ezio, Orlando, Il Pastor Fido, Ariodante, Alcina, Arminio, Berenice, Faramondo, Serres. The last name calls for a word by itself. Xerxes has nothing to do with the Persian ruler of antiquity. It is a comic opera, Handel's first and only one, which stands up extraordinarily well under modern stylized conditions of revival, apart from which it contains possibly one of the most universally beloved melodies that Handel ever wrote. This melody, heard at the very beginning of the piece, appears in the score as a larghetto to the words Ombra me fu, a song of gratitude to a plane tree for its beneficent shade. 
but for generations it has been slowed from the pace originally prescribed to a solemn swelling hymn known to uncounted millions as Handel's Largo, and far more know it as a churchly canticle than its lightly moving operatic context. Almost every one of this mass of operas, furthermore, is charged with grand arias of all the emotional varieties common to its epoch, gems enshrined in practically every one of the great anthologies of the eighteenth-century song. It was not until 1741 that Handel concluded his period of operatic creativity with De Edemia, written to a libretto by Paolo Roli. London's taste for opera had, during more than a decade, shown continued fluctuation, but in 1731 a new situation brought about an event that was to provoke a development of capital importance for Handel's future. The children of the Chapel Royal presented in a private performance his mask, Esther, on the composer's birthday. The success of the performance was such that it resulted in others one of which was given without Handel's consent by one of his rivals. The master was equal to the occasion. He added some numbers to the score, and gave half a dozen representations at the King's Theatre. But as a biblical subject could not be acted on the stage, the mask was given in concert form, in the presence of the royal family and of high society. The Handelian oratorio had more or less come into being. In the summer of 1733, Handel went to Oxford. The university authorities had offered him a degree of Doctor of Music. Oxford is said to have known little of his music at that time, yet his arrival there might, according to Newman Flower, have been the triumphant entry of a king. The town was overcrowded, even accommodations at the hostels ran out and people slept in the streets. The composer brought with him a new oratorio, Athelia, composed to a text which Samuel Humphreys had adapted from Racine. Hugo Lycantrit claims that the rector, Dr. Holmes, aimed to bring about a rapprochement between the Hanoverians and the Jacobites. A whole week of Handelian works was offered, with hearings of Esther and Deborah, Athalia, the Utrecht Te Deum, Assis and Galatea, and other creations. In the end, the master did not receive the honorary degree. Some have believed that he turned it down when he was told it would cost a hundred pounds. Like Haydn half a century after, he found the academic honors of Oxford expensive, and later a story gained currency that Handel had shouted in his particular brand of English, "'Vat the dieful I draw away my money for what the blockhead wish I no want!' Had it been practical, he might have brought a whole opera production to Oxford. In place of such a luxury, he compromised on oratorios, the more so because the dividing line between such entertainment and the opera of the period was not so sharply drawn as it was eventually to become. The chief differences between the two forms lay in the preponderance of choruses, such as, in opera, were regarded as hardly more than side issues. Meanwhile, he seemed unable to resist the lure of the theatre. Again and again he returned to Italian opera. He continued his earlier partnership with Heidegger, he made trips to Italy and elsewhere, and secured new singers, the castrato Carestini, the prima donna Strada. 
His enemies increased in number and power, and resorted to the basest tactics imaginable to discredit and injure him. The so-called opera of the nobility opened at a playhouse in Lincoln's Inn Fields, lured his singers away from him by fair means or foul, and by securing the great Farinelli obtained a trump card. Handel, who in time parted company with Heidegger, would burn his fingers the moment his fortune seemed on the upgrade. Even the weather was against him, what with the Thames freezing over in one of the years that he obstinately returned to opera and cutting down his audiences. He lost money ruinously, he went into bankruptcy, he wore himself out to such a degree that he had a mental and physical breakdown, and had to go to the continent to Aix-la-Chapelle for a cure. His amazing resilience of spirit and body helped him back to health, and actually encouraged him to make another attempt at an operatic season with his egregious associate Heidegger at the King's Theatre early in 1738, for which he composed his comedy, Serres. A few months earlier his royal friend, Queen Caroline, had died, and Handel gave voice to his genuine grief in the great funeral anthem, The Ways of Zion Do Mourn, and despite his misfortunes he busied himself with a charitable enterprise, the promotion of a society for the support of decayed musicians, which enlisted his active sympathies for the rest of his life not even benefactions of the sort could mollify the legions of his implacable enemies his aristocratic foes to hasten his complete downfall actually hired hoodlums to tear down his posters and precipitate noisy disturbances whenever they thought trouble-making could in some way or other harm him yet a few friends stood unshakably by his side none more faithfully than the loyal mrs delaney just when his creditors had seized him and threatened him with imprisonment, the news of his tribulations gave rise to a popular movement of sympathy. In 1735 he had delighted the English public by his Alexander's Feast, composed on Dryden's Ode to St. Cecilia, produced triumphantly at the Covent Garden Theatre. It had been written in twenty days. As the years passed, Handel's composing activity seemed incredibly accelerated. In the freezing winter of 1739, he wrote, To keep myself warm, as Roland says, the little Cecilia cantata in a week, the version of Milton's poem under the title L'Allegro il Penseroso ed il Medorato in just under a fortnight, and the glorious Concerti Grossi, Opus six in a month distracted by his last operatic cares. Incidentally, Handel had received about this time a testimonial of public admiration in the form of a marble statue by the sculptor Rubillac, which a manager of musical entertainment named Tyres had caused to be erected in Vauxhall Gardens, a meeting-place of London society, where Handel's works made up the best-liked musical features. Still, by the spring of 1741, Handel, in a moment of profoundest disheartenment, prepared to throw up the sponge and leave for good and all his home for the past thirty years. At long last he was fed up on the struggle and announced one last concert for April 8, 1741. 
and then when the darkness before dawn seemed blackest he sat down to create his masterpiece the most universally beloved choral work ever composed that summer charles jennens gave handel a compilation of scriptural texts which he called messiah jennens was a literary amateur born at gopsall hall in leicestershire and educated at balliol college oxford rich and bizarre he was vastly conceited and especially proud of the manner in which he had assembled the various biblical texts used in this case handel had been associated with him before in the oratorial saul seventeen thirty nine and in l'allegro ed il penseroso a year later as a supplement to which he had added some poor verses of his own to the lines of milton and called the product il moderato robert manson myers thinks it extraordinary that handel turned to this eccentric millionaire for his libretto of messiah jennens was of another mind and even later wrote to an acquaintance i shall show you a collection i gave handel called messiah which i value highly he has made a fine entertainment of it, though not near so good as he might, and ought to have done. There are some passages far unworthy of Handel, but even more unworthy of Messiah. And deploring Handel's maggots, he added that he had, with great difficulty, made him correct some of the grossest faults in the composition. Doubtless Handel, had he so chosen, could have picked his text himself. He compiled the book of Israel in Egypt, unaided, in 1738, and when a good deal earlier the Bishop of London wanted to help him with the words for the coronation anthems, he retorted, I have read my Bible very well, and I shall choose for myself. Mr. Myers, in his encyclopedic study of Messiah, feels certain that Handel must have controlled the choice of passages selected. Like Bach, Haydn, Mozart, Schubert, and other supreme musicians, Handel could create with a rapidity which ignominiously shames composers of our supposedly speedy age. Even bearing that fact in mind, the composition of Messiah between Saturday, August 22, 1741, and Monday, September 14, following, remains one of the miracles of music. Shut up in a little room on the first floor of his home on Lower Brook Street, Hanover Square, none can say exactly what went on. Handel is supposed to have uttered afterwards the words of St. Paul, Whether I was in my body or out of my body as I wrote it, I know not. Nobody seems to have dared intrude upon this mystic concentration. Food was left near him, but usually found untouched when the servant came to remove it. He sat at his desk like a stone figure and stared into space. Sometimes his man stood in awe to see his master's tears drop on the music paper and mingle with the ink. When he was composing, he was despised. A visitor is reported to have found the trembling composer sobbing with intense emotion. And after the Hallelujah Chorus, he uttered those historic words, I did think I did see all heaven before me, and the great God himself. The autograph score, with its blots, its angry erasures, and general untidiness, offers fierce evidence of his tumultuous feelings and flaming ecstasies. 
Possibly between April and late August of 1741, he was shut up in his four walls planning the work, for we have no clear idea just what he did during this period. Sketches and fragments do not clear up what mystery there may be, for the composer destroyed all but some fugitive scraps. End of part three.